You're listening to a podcast from West Wind Church. For more information, visit our website at westwindchurch.org. We did something different with the uh, snowblower. We sold it. <laughs> Serious, we got rid of it just early on because Ellen and I are getting older, and in order to stay younger when you're getting older, you got to shovel, not snowblow. So just a tip for, for the future, all right? So we're in Luke, the real Jesus, and uh, I want to invite you to turn your Bibles to Luke 5. We're just going to look at a beautiful, beautiful narrative, verses 33 through 39. But I want to... Uh, just kind of say thank you to those who served us yesterday at the Alpha Day to Remember. We got away, and there were a number of people who just came alongside to make the day exceptional. You know who they are. Thank you so much. But the Alpha course, you've been hearing about it, is one of our attempts to reach our community with the love and gospel of Jesus Christ. And I just keep planting seeds uh, sometime in the near future, if you haven't taken the Alpha course, plan that with your life group. Uh, plan that as individuals. Reach out to your community. It's just a really cool space. What's interesting about the Alpha course is it's been taken by 29 million people already globally. It's cross-cultural. It's international. Large church, medium church, small church, doesn't matter. And again, it just brings the love and gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, Alpha has a philosophy and there's numerous components to it, but one is, if you feed them, they'll come. And you know what's cool about that? It's really true, folks. We launched the evening at Alpha at a meal table. Why a meal table? Because meals build relationships. It draws people into community, into connection. And so you start the evening, 30, 40 minutes, just hanging out, sharing life, growing together. But what also is cool about the concept of if you feed them, they'll come, do you realize it's biblical? There is a lot of eating that goes on in the Bible. Really. You look at the Gospel of Luke alone, 24 chapters, and here's the truth. This is true. Jesus is either going to a meal, eating a meal, or going from a meal. There's a lot of eating going on. Uh, also, in Luke, there are 23 parables, and we're going to start moving into the parables. 15 of the parables directly relate to food themes and banquet environments. Now, there's a theological purpose for this throughout Luke, and let me share this with you. Luke employs the meal imagery as his primary way of expressing the inclusive nature of the gospel. Please don't miss that, folks. The gospel's for all people. Pastor Jason taught on uh, Christ's call to Levi last week. This is a guy who's marginalized, despised, and hated on the outskirts of Judaism, and he calls him to follow. Levi says yes, goes all in and follows. What does Levi do? First thing, he throws a, 
a banquet, a feast in honor of Jesus. The ancient world had what was called symposium banquets where you reclined and you ate and you drank and you did what Alpha does. You talk about the issues of life, what people think, what's on their hearts and on their minds. I so appreciated what Nate shared this morning. That was on his heart, that was on his mind, and he was feeling that song. When you came to the symposium meal, it was an open forum. So a banquet was thrown in honor of Jesus, and people are talking about life. And guess what happens? He gets criticized. In fact, there's great opposition that's starting to mount, as we're going to see in the next few chapters of Luke. The religious establishment does not like what they see in Rabbi Jesus. He's hanging out, you've heard it last week, with tax collectors and... Well, of course, because he's a physician. (laughs) He came to heal, right? Now, in your text um, that we're going to explore today, Luke uh, 5, 33 through 39, um, there's a real interesting controversy going on. They get mad at Jesus, and they confront him because Your disciples are feasting, and John's disciples are fasting. What's going on? How come you're having so much fun with sinners, and we have to live so somber and religious? So if you have your Bibles, please turn there. And I want to invite you to stand. We're going to read this passage together. It's one of the things we like to do at Westwind Church. And so join with me, if you would, please, nice and loud. Then they said to him, John's disciples fast often and say prayers, and those of the Pharisees do the same, but yours eat and drink. Jesus said to them, you can't make the wedding guests fast while the groom is with them, can you? But the time will come when the groom will be taken away from them, then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a patch from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. Otherwise, not only will he tear the new, but also the piece from the new garment will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins. It will spill and the skins will be ruined. But the new wine should be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, wants new, because he says the old is better. Thank you. You may be seated. So the initial controversy is real simple here. It's feasting instead of fasting. And so they're very confrontational with Jesus. You saw last week, if you were here, they were complaining that he's he's at a meal with sinners, in fact, great sinners, because they supersized sin in that day. The tax collectors were supersized sinners. And now, another controversy, they kind of come antagonistic, frustrated, we're spiritual, you're unspiritual, you you think you're this great rabbi, and and look at us, We're, we're mourning, we're praying, we're fasting, you guys are partying with sinners, you're having way too much fun. Now, before we dive into the text, we gotta understand something. 
<clears throat> there was a, a legitimate concern here. And so we're going to address the legitimate concern. Because fasting biblically, please hear me, is a very important spiritual discipline. Okay? So let me walk you through how first century Jews thought about fasting. First and foremost, fasting was an act of worship and it was part of devotion to God. Fasting was highly regarded. And at times, especially at major events like the Day of Atonement, all of Israel fasted. You may recall from our study in the book of Esther, Esther calls for a three-day fast. Why? The people of God could literally have been annihilated. 127 provinces in Persia, literally annihilated. A fast happens, they pray, God intervenes, he works, God's people are saved. Luke 8.12 tells us this, that the Pharisees fasted for 24 hours two times a week, folks. This is serious spiritual discipline. And then fasting usually involved penance, being mournful for your sin, sorrow, being broken over your sin, and a plea to God for deliverance. So the people of God are fasting, and if you recall, Jesus launches his public ministry doing what? 40 days of prayer and fasting. Christ was all in on fasting. He knew how important it was. So because fasting was regarded as a virtue, the absence of fasting among Jesus' disciples at this time could be viewed as a lack of respect or a lack of love for God. So Jesus responds to the criticism by presenting a parable, an illustration to explain, please don't miss this, that the kingdom of God is in your midst and something new and radical is taking place. And as important as fasting is, there's a new day, there's a fresh start. God's kingdom is coming and join in it. And so... We move to our text. The first illustration that Jesus uses, look in your Bibles to verse 36. Jesus says, and he uses this phrase three times, no one, no one, no one. It was just like absolute. No one tears a patch from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. Why? Not only will it tear the new, but also the piece from the new garment will not match the old. Let me show you a picture here of Caleb... Uh, our youth guy, he's always styling. I, I'll still never, ever figure this out. And if you're wearing ripped jeans, you know, I'm, I'm good, I'm good, right? We're good, me and you, we're good. I don't get that, guys, you know what I mean? It just still seems weird to me, but Caleb comes to work styling. I wasn't allowed to dress like that when I was a youth pastor. But here's the basic thing. If you took new denim, right, you try to sell it to the old denim, what happens? The uh, new is going to shrink in the wash, pull away from the old, which is already shrunk, and lose-lose proposition. All you gals get that, right? This took me like two hours to figure out this week. <laughs> this isn't theological. This is about sewing. I don't know how to sew. I don't sew. Bought my wife a sewing machine. She's never used it. We don't sew in the missile home. I'm serious. Anybody know how to sew? Talk to Ellen. All right. So second illustration, very similar, almost identical. Luke 5, uh, 37 through 39. No one puts new wine into own wide skins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins. It will spill and the skins will be ruined. 
But the new wine should be put into fresh wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine wants the new because he says the old is better. And again, this is just real simple ancient world. They're using animal skins. And so the old wineskins shrunk and did their thing. You put new wine in, it ferments, it, it, it puts forth some sort of gas. And next thing you know, the gas explodes the wineskin. The wineskins uh, broke. The wine is lost another lose-lose proposition. The key word in these two parables is new. Please mark that down if you mark your Bibles. The key word is new. What is new? Please hear me, folks. This is so beautiful. This is jubilee. Remember Nazareth, today the scripture is being fulfilled. What is new is the long-awaited Messiah is in your midst. The kingdom of God is coming. God is doing a new thing, and it's a fulfillment of the old thing. It wasn't brand, brand new, remember? Today the scripture is fulfilled, Isaiah 61. This is jubilee, setting the captive free. This is God taking hearts of stone and giving us a heart of flesh. All of that was forecasted in the Old Testament, but somehow the religious establishment forgot and they missed it. And they moved to codifying a sacred faith, Judaism. They moved to rules and regulations. They created a religion of do's and don'ts. They put yokes on people that they could not carry. And Christ is saying, wait, it's new. The Messiah is here, and it's beautiful. Now, try to put yourselves in the shoes of the religious establishment. And I feel for these guys. We're talking about the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. We're going to look a lot more at them next week, so I won't go into detail. But here's the challenge for the religious establishment. The old guard, the old garment, the old wineskin, the scribes and Pharisees, because they codified sacred Judaism with rules, regulations, do's and don'ts, are going to have a very difficult time accepting the new garment, the new wine, the new kingdom. And it's sad. And so when you watch the New Testament unfold, you'll see the clash between Jesus and the religious establishment, not the general populace, they embraced him. He touched lepers. He healed demon-possessed people. He goes into a home and takes care of Peter's mother-in-law. He's reaching out to tax collectors. Levi, come follow me. Levi does, and oh my goodness, they could not comprehend this new. Now, I do want you to know this that this codification of Judaism, these rules and regulations, so many of them were traditions and man-made. And by application, folks, we the church can, can go that route too. So let's stay humble. But one of their codes was you can't eat with tax collectors and sinners. Can you go anywhere in the Old Testament and show me a verse that says don't hang out with sinners? Is there a passage but remember last week, if you were here, Luke 5.30, the Pharisees, their scribes were complaining to his disciples, why are you doing this? Why are you breaking our laws, our codes, our traditions? Why are you eating with sinful people? We already have the answer, because I'm a spiritual physician, and I care for sick people, right? They couldn't get it. Nowhere in Scripture does God ever, ever 
prevent us engaging those who need the Lord. You know, one of the questions I often get as a pastor is this. You know, pastor, how do we respond when we're invited to environments that really challenge our morals, our values, our ethics? You've had challenges like that, right? Should I be present in this environment? Does my presence condone what's going on and things that I disagree with? I can't answer for you. I can't give you my conscience, but I do two things. One, I go with conscience. Lord, you know, is is this okay? And then secondly, generally, I follow the lead of Jesus. Jesus being together in environments with tax collectors and sinners, never, ever condoned their behavior. Do you realize that? Never condoned it. But he loved the sinner. How are you going to influence people if you're never in those environments? It's impossible. Then we just stand off, we back up further, and we have no influence. Jesus says, no, it's just the opposite. I'm going to get up close and personal. And I'm going to touch the leper. Everybody else is quarantined. I'm going to touch the person to show my love and care and are moving towards them. So I don't know how that plays out when those decisions come. Go with conscience. You got to let the Spirit lead you. But boy, oh boy, Jesus is a great example. I hope you see that. So Jesus gets criticized for feasting, not fasting, but like he always does, he takes the opportunity to teach some of the greatest truths about the kingdom of God coming in our midst. And that leads us to our blessing. And if you have your connect card, let me share that with you. Because the kingdom of God is coming and is in your midst. And here's the blessing, folks. Every one of us has the privilege, metaphorically speaking, to taste and see that the Lord is good. So I'm going to use the metaphor, the title of the message, A Taste of the Kingdom. Psalm 34, verse 8, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man, how blessed is the woman who puts their trust in him. Three things I think Jesus wants us to taste about the kingdom coming. Number one, a taste of kingdom joy. Look at verse 34. Jesus said to them, I love this. You cannot make the wedding guests fast while the groom is with them. Think about what he's saying here. The groom's here, the bridegroom. When was the last time you went to a wedding and you fasted? No, you feasted, right? Probably a little bit too much. Some of you know in 2019, last June, our daughter Erin was married. I remember saying to Ellen, this was one of the most joyful days of our life. Why was it so joyful? Because Aaron married in Christ, and we're so delighted with Ryan. Because our family, our lifelong friends from around the country, our faith family was there to do what? Celebrate the joy we had in God's good work. I had the privilege to officiate the wedding. First I walked her down and then turned around and officiated. But can you imagine, hey, let me present to you Mr. and Mrs. Air Ryan Albaugh, and they're walking down the aisle, and then I say, hey, just so you know, Ryan requested that we don't have a feast, we don't have a celebration, we don't have a reception, but that his guests go away fasting. Man, I'd chuck a shoe at that preacher. 
It just doesn't happen. And how beautiful. Jesus is like, it's just so simple. The groom's here. A wedding's taking place. This is a time for joy. I do want to remind you, though, Jesus is not discouraging the beautiful and powerful spiritual discipline of fasting. However, he's saying there's a time and season for everything. And this is a new time, a new era has begun. The bridegroom, Jesus Christ, is in your midst. A wedding's taking place. And when you go to a wedding, you feast, you don't fast. I want to take a moment and try to explain first century Judaism weddings. It's one of the most beautiful practices. I won't go into all the details. There are resources out there. Kenneth Bailey is my favorite. Lived in the Middle East for 60 years. New Testament scholar knows this stuff very well. Here's what would happen. So guy, gal, they get betrothed. It's kind of like our engagement, but it's legally binding. In other words, it's contractual. Families are involved. Typically, the guy, gal lives in different communities apart from each other. Here's the funnest thing, and it's crazy. Gals, just put yourself in the gal's shoe. So they're betrothed, legally binding, a contract six to 12 months typically as the guy prepares the house to bring his bride, get married, and settled in. You know what the groom does, though? He goes to claim the bride unannounced. You know what the bride has to do every day? Be ready. Does that sound familiar? Keep your lamps burning. Be ready. We don't know the day or the hour the bridegroom is coming back. She has to be ready every day that all of a sudden it's time. The house is ready. The community is ready. The family is ready. It's time for the wedding. He'll travel with friends and guests and family to claim her. Then there's a wedding procession all the way back to his home. And here's one of the beautiful things. You don't go to the synagogue. No rabbis officiating the wedding. You know what the wedding is? It is the wedding feast, where guests, bride and groom, sit down at the meal, and they feast, not fast, right at the meal. That's when the wedding takes place. What a cool, cool thing. And some of the weddings took place through the evening hours, and sometimes for a whole week long. Now, I'm not a big fan of that. I was ready to go on my honeymoon that night. Glad I did. We got up to Niagara Falls, good to go, okay? But if Jews want to party all week, that's fine. That's their thing. But think about it, folks. That's how it works with our relationship with Jesus Christ, the bridegroom. It's coming today. He's going to return for his bride. Are we ready? Are we adorning ourselves? And so this is a time for joy. This is kingdom joy. And what a beautiful picture it is. So the implications are clear. Something joyful and significant like a wedding is taking place because the Messiah, the bridegroom, Jesus Christ, is pursuing his bride, the church. What a day. So by using this image, Jesus was saying to his critics, I came to make life a wedding feast. And if you come to know the bridegroom, you can share my joy. You know, we get the impression when we read the New Testament, and I don't want to pick on the scribes, Pharisees, and Sadducees, but we do get impressions, and there's a lot of them, that they had little, if any, joy. When you have religion without relationship, it's rules and regulations, it's do's and don'ts. 
It's guilt and shame. When you have relationship, as Nate talked about, now it's about love and hearts and joy and celebration. John 15, 11, Jesus said this. I've spoken these things to you. Please don't miss this. So that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. Is that not a gift? That's the wedding feast. That's the joy of the Lord living in us. That his joy gets to be made complete in us. I got a taste of joy last Sunday. Give you a little insight into my Sunday morning ritual. Typically, 4.30, 5 o'clock, I'm downstairs, and I start with a health drink. And so I like to get up early, and I get my mug, and I got my health stuff. And, you know, we have a pitcher that's got purified filter on it. And so got this big old pitcher, maybe 48 ounces. I pull it out of the fridge, and I, I go to pour it into the mug, and the lid wasn't on. So, you know, 48 ounces of water, I got baptized, I'm half-dressed, water all over creation, 15 minutes later, mopped up, things are dry, had my health drink, went back uh, upstairs, told Ellen the story, and she's still laying in bed, and uh, she said this, we've been married 30 years, I've never heard this before, she said this, did you cuss? (laughs) (laughs) I just was blindsided, so... (laughs) And, and, and what, was, what was so cool is this, guys, hear me. What was co- so cool, I said, honey, as a matter of fact, I didn't. I just laughed. I don't know why it was funny. I really don't, because it wasn't funny. But I, I, just, I just laughed. Here I am, my boxers, water's all over the place, chemical, you know, health stuff, and, you know, and I just laughed. But then I thought about that this past week. That's not me. I could have kicked something. And I could have got mad at the person who uh, didn't put the lid on. Who was that person? <laughs> Is she here this morning? <laughs> but isn't that cool to do life like that? I love being a Christian. I love being a Christian. Because I remember the old me. I remember when the joy of the Lord wasn't there. And now to have his joy, boy, it's, it's good stuff. Galatians 5, 22 through 23, Paul says this. The fruit, singular, nine beautiful attributes of the Spirit. Love, second one's joy. Second one's joy. And I think it's there for a reason. And so the question we might ask this morning is, how's your joy meter? When life gets frustrating, when things don't go your way, when you get agitated or blindsided by the annoyances of life, Would you agree how you respond really matters? Especially at home with your spouse and your kids. Especially at work with your coworkers. Or sometimes when you face the real hardships like Paul, he's in prison. He's really going through the tough stuff and he chooses joy. Even in the worst of scenarios. That's Christianity. That's a taste of the kingdom. My joy may be in you so your joy might be made complete. That's what happens when the groom shows up at the wedding. Taste number two, a taste of kingdom love. Look at verse 34, please. Jesus said to them, you can't make the wedding guests fast while the groom is with them, can you? 
Again, it's rhetorical. I want to show you Mark 2.19 because this is a parallel passage. Jesus said to them, the wedding guests cannot fast while the groom is with them. Can they? As long as they have the groom with them, they cannot fast. Please connect the dots here. This is what Luke is really championing. To usher in this new era, Jesus uses one of the best-known metaphors or symbols of God to demonstrate that the essence of this new thing is all about relationship. It's all about love and not religion. I don't know how to categorize what was going on in the first century with the scribes, the Pharisees, and Sadducees, but I can say as we look globally, as we look back at thousands of years of you know, Christianity versus religion, I think the radical difference is this. It's predicated on a love relationship with God through Jesus Christ. All of religion is a list of do's and don'ts, and I could, I could, we could do a course on that. And so that's what's this new thing. I'm bringing in love. I'm bringing in what you should have known from the Old Testament. Let me show you a few of the pictures, and I didn't give an exhaustive list. In fact, for time's sake, I, I, I shrunk the list, but there's dozens of pictures here. Through the prophet Isaiah, God says this, I will take you to be my wife. Does it get any more intimate than that? God's saying to his people, I will take you to be my wife forever. I will take you to be my wife in righteousness, justice, love, and compassion. I will take you to be my wife in faithfulness, fidelity, and you will know Yahweh. There's an intimacy going on here in Hosea. And if you know the context of Hosea, this was to a people who had abandoned their first love. Isaiah 62, 5 is beautiful. As a groom rejoices over his bride, so your God will rejoice over you. Gentlemen, go back to your wedding day. For me, October 28th, it'll be 31 years. As a groom rejoices over his bride, so God rejoices over you, his bride, the church. That's beautiful. That's love. That's intimacy. So Jesus is now saying, the bridegroom is in your midst. He has come to claim his bride, the church. And so two crucial questions, and the first one is this. And friends, this is very personal to you. Nobody can answer this but you. The groom has come. The invitation is given. The spirit and the bride say, come. He invites you to the wedding feast. And you're going to see in Luke, oh, there were a bunch of excuses. <sighs> Man, I just bought a new tractor. I got, I got to go farming. Hey, you know, just got this new job. I, I got to give 60, 70 hours. One excuse after another. And it hurts. And then there was a compelling in Luke 14. Go out to the highways and byways. Just invite everybody. And there still was room at the table. Go out and get the lame, the blind, the broken, the hurting. Go out so that the banquet table will be filled. The spirit and the bride says, come. I don't know why sometimes when God gives that great invitation to come to know him in such an intimate way, we put up the wall. We resist. Our hearts get hard. We don't open our ears. But today it could be different, folks. 
If you've never said yes to Jesus Christ, the bridegroom, he invites you to the wedding table. All you do is have to respond affirmatively. Yes, I will be your bride. You will be my bridegroom. Secondly, maybe for the majority of us here, there's another compelling piece. We love him because he first loved us, right? There is a day when the groom is coming back for the bride. Here was Paul's ambition for the church, our ambition for Westwood. It's found in uh, 1 Corinthians 11.2. Paul writes, For I am jealous over you with a godly jealousy because I promised you in marriage to one husband, Jesus, to present a pure virgin. And so here's the goal of the church. We are in a process of being sanctified, right? He's coming back. We as the bride are awaiting. We don't know the day or the hour. But the question is, are we living pure? And when we fall short, do we confess? Is there a brokenness like Peter did? He went out and wept bitterly after denying his Savior. So what a privilege to say yes to the wedding feast and to the bridegroom, and then to adorn ourselves, live like a pure virgin as he prepares to return. Now finally, we'll close with this, a taste of kingdom grace. Please stick with me, don't miss this. Look at verse 35. But the time will come when the groom will be taken away from them, then they will fast in those days. Focus your attention, if you would please, just for a moment. When Jesus uses the phrase, when the groom will be taken away, he uses it to forecast, to predict his sacrificial death, burial, and resurrection. Now, in the context, where is the groom going to be taken away from? He's going to be taken away from the wedding feast, from the meal, from participating with sinners and participating with those who said yes to following him, like Levi, like Peter, and the disciples. Now, this may shock you. Jesus ate, quote-unquote, with everyone. And his acceptance of tax collectors and sinners was so radical, so total, it will be the basis for his rejection by the religious establishment. That's how deeply offended they were at his connection to those who are sick. It's going to be the basis. Luke's going to develop that. It's hard stuff, folks. There's a Near Eastern proverb that says this, I saw them eating, and I knew who they were. This is for real. So you see who they're eating? Boom, judgment. They're put into a certain class. And because he ate with tax collectors and sinners, by virtue of I saw who they ate with, he is a tax collector. He is a sinner. Crucify him. Now, you may be wondering why I suggest this is a taste of kingdom grace. Well, simply stated, grace means favor. That's all it means. It's God's favor. One of my favorite definitions of grace is this. The grace of God is the free, sovereign favor to the ill-deserving. Take note of that just for a moment. The grace of God is the free, sovereign favor to the ill-deserving. Let's go back in the first five chapters of the book of Luke. Who are the ill-deserving? Certainly, they're the tax collectors. They're individuals like Levi who are ripping people off, who are categorized 
as supersized sinners. Jesus' favor goes out to them. How about the average sinner? Again, we see chapter after chapter, story after story. Jesus in John 4 is in Samaria. He meets a gal at a well. They have uh, verbal exchange. Boy, if you knew who you were talking to, he would have given you living water. And then her life is revealed for what it was. It was a broken life. Five husbands, the one you have now is not your husband. She goes back to her community. Oh my goodness, a transformed woman. Shares her testimony. Other Samaritans come to faith in Christ. He touched people where they were at. The quarantine lepers. Remember the guy who got lowered through the roof? Your sins are forgiven. Then he healed them. Take up your mat and walk. He was always touching people. How about the Gentiles? Remember in Nazareth, he got trouble. Three stories of Gentile individuals that God cared for. And Israel felt so offended because they had little compassion for lost people. But then, folks, it's all inclusive. Let me show you a beautiful verse in Titus 2.11. For the grace of God has appeared with salvation Please read that last phrase aloud. For all people. For the grace of God has appeared. It's grace upon grace. It's undeserved favor. I will never, ever forget the day of my salvation. Never. God's favor rested on me. The bridegroom said, come. And I came. And my life's been changed. How about you this morning? Have you experienced the grace of God? Do you have a love relationship with God through Jesus Christ? And please, I want to be sensitive to religion. I do. But religion is broken, folks. It's just a laundry list of performance. We're going to hit that pretty hard next week. Think about what it must have been like to be at a first century Jewish wedding. No rabbi, no synagogue, no officiating. The wedding party's coming. It's a hoopla. There's instruments. There's celebration. They sit down, pray, thank you, boom. Psalm 19 talks about at times a wedding could be consummated there during that week-long feast. So the Bible is very graphic about these beautiful pictures in Scripture. How's your love relationship? How's your joy quotient? Are you celebrating grace after grace through the bridegroom, Jesus Christ? Let's stand. Let's worship together. Father, we just come to you in this space. To, Lord, there's just something about being able to run back to you when we feel like we've wandered away, to find this new thing with you. Father, I just pray that that becomes a part of our, our daily moments with you that we realize that you are standing there waiting with your arms wide open so wide no wider than the arms of the cross Lord that you reached around the globe to embrace us and there's nothing that's too big that you can't embrace so Lord we run to you to find newness in you to find healing in you to be transformed by you Lord, thank you for loving us in that way, to be the physician.
to be the lover of our souls, Lord, to be our God. Father, we give this all in your incredible and powerful name of Jesus.